Hello, my friends. Welcome to the 40 Days to PMP Exam Success. And this is MMA Day, where we focus on models, methods, and artifacts. Now, if you haven't been paying attention, it's the seventh edition. We have models, methods, and artifacts documented in there. And today, I'm going to take you all the way through them. Now, you might remember this model table in the PMBOK Guide 7th edition. We're going in on this table, and we're going to start off with the situational leadership model. But let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about what exactly a model is. A model is a thinking strategy to explain a process, framework, or phenomenon. So let's start off with the situational leadership models. Situational leadership models are a subset of the vast array of models out there. And the basic concept is you cannot and should not lead two people the same way. Everyone needs a unique approach and insight as to how they should be led. Situational leadership models describe ways to tailor one's leadership style to meet the needs of individual and uh, project team members. So let's take a look one by one. We're starting off with one of my favorites. It's the Situational Leadership 2. This is Ken Blanchard's Situational Leadership 2 model. To be quite honest, Paul Hersey and Ken Blanchard worked on this way back. But the Pembroke Guide 7 reads, this measures project team member development using competence and commitment as two main variables. So think about it. If someone is very competent, you don't need to direct them a whole lot. And if someone is committed all in, you don't need to motivate them a whole lot. But if someone is not competent and not committed, then you're going to have to give them a whole lot of inspiration, a whole lot of direction. And that's the basic concept. If you Google it, you'll be able to find imagery on it. There's no imagery in the Pembroke Guide 7th edition, just the blurb there. And let's go to the Oscar model. The Oscar model is a coaching and mentoring model, and it has five contributing factors. Outcome, situation, choices or consequences, actions, and review. It helps individuals adapt their coaching or leadership styles to support individuals who have an action plan for personal development. And those are the five contributing factors. An outcome identifies long-term goals of an individual. A situation enables conversation about current skills, abilities, and so on. Choices or consequences identify all the potential avenues for attaining the desired outcome. Actions commit to specific improvements by focusing on immediate and attainable targets and review all about holding regular meetings and that offers support and helps ensure that individuals remain motivated and on track. Let's go to the next one. This is communication models. Very straightforward stuff that honestly, all you would need is a few words. Cross-cultural communication model was developed by Browways and Price and incorporates the idea that the message itself and how it is transmitted is influenced by the sender's current knowledge, experience, language, thinking, and communication styles, as well as stereotypes. You've already heard a little bit about this in the sixth edition if you've read it. The way we perceive a message is as a result of a variety of variables, such as those mentioned, language, thinking, communication styles, and so on. Let's go to the next one. 
Next one under communication models is effectiveness of communication channels. Now, Alistair Coburn developed a model that describes the communication channels along with the axes of effectiveness or richness. If you look through my videos, you see where I have actually explained this model. Media richness is a function of various characteristics, including the ability to handle multiple information cues simultaneously, facilitate rapid feedback, establish a personal focus, and utilize natural language. As you move from just having a simple text-based communication approach all the way to adding more and more variables such as voice and video conferencing, the richness just goes up all the way to face-to-face -face communication. That's the general idea. Let's move to the next one. The next one is gulf of execution and evaluation. Donald Norman described the gulf of execution as the degree to which an item corresponds with what a person expects it to do. Said another way, it is a difference between the intention of a user and what the item allows them to do or supports them in doing. The gulf of evaluation is the degree to which an item supports the user in discovering how to interpret the item and interact with it effectively. Let's take a look at an example. A car that has the ability to parallel park itself would have a gulf of execution if the driver expected to push a button labeled park and have the car park itself, and the car did not park itself. That's a gulf of execution. The same parking example would show a gulf of evaluation if the controls were not designed in such a way that the driver could easily determine how to initiate the self-parking function. So we have the gulf of execution and the gulf of evaluation. Let's move to the next one. Moving on, we have motivation models. Under motivation models, we have the well-known hygiene and motivation factors, Herzberg's hygiene factors. He simply states that these hygiene factors are not the motivators. The motivators are different. He said hygiene factors related to work are company policies, salary, physical environment. If hygiene factors are insufficient, they cause dissatisfaction. And he talked about the real motivators. The real motivators are things that relate to the work, such as success and achievement, growth, advancement, and so on. So there's a difference between the hygiene factors and the real motivators. That was his main point. Next, we have intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And the overall idea about this, it, it dates what is referenced here. People are either motivated from within or without. That's it. Daniel Pink published several books about intrinsic factors that motivate people. He stated, while extrinsic rewards such as salary are motivators to a certain extent, once a person is paid fairly for their work, the motivational power of extrinsic rewards ceases to exist. Goes very much in line with what you heard about hygiene factors. Daniel Pink identifies three types of intrinsic motivators, autonomy, mastery and purpose. Let's move on. Theory of needs. The theory of needs is David McClellan's model, and this has been around for a while and talked about in PMI, PMP space. People are motivated primarily by three needs, achievement, power, and affiliation. Achievement, people want to reach a goal. Power, people like to organize, motivate, and lead others. And it's not a bad thing to be motivated by power. Uh, it could also be looked at as someone having a propensity to lead others. They are motivated by increased responsibility. It's not a bad thing. 
And then we have affiliation. People who are motivated by affiliation seek acceptance and belonging. They are motivated by being part of a team. Absolutely nothing wrong in that. And last but not least, we have the famous McGregor's X and Y theories coupled with theory Z. So let's talk about them one by one. The theory X mindset is far reaching across organizations. And the theory X mindset is one of micromanagement. It's bad. It's a top-down approach. Now, some people say there's a place for it, but when you really boil down Theory X, it's so bad on every side that even when you look to reward your people, you're doing so because you believe they cannot be trusted, they cannot manage, they work on on their own, and they need supervision, a whole lot of supervision. This management style is often seen in a production or labor-intensive environment, or one with many layers of management. Theory Y, on the flip side, is one in which the individual, or it's a group think, an entire company think, the Theory Y mindset is one that looks at you as being able to fulfill the work obligations, one who can work without supervision, one who is able to lead themselves. The Theory Y manager encourages creativity and discussion. We could say the Theory X manager is an impediment to the employee's morale. The Theory Y manager on the flip side is a boost to the employee's morale. Then we have Theory Z. Theory Z is a transcendent dimension to work where individuals are motivated by self-realization, values, and a higher calling. William Alchie's version of Theory Z focuses on motivating employees by creating a job for life where the focus is on one's well-being. This style of management seeks to promote high productivity, morale, and satisfaction, so it's good. Abraham Maslow saw Theory Z as a transcendent dimension to work where individuals are motivated by self-realization. You know, we talk about self-actualization in Maslow's Pyramid. That's it. All right, let's move on. We're moving on to our next model, and we're going pretty quick here. Hope you're able to keep up. Let's talk about change models. So change models, we have managing change in organizations by the PMI. I think this is one of PMI's better works. It's called Managing Change in Organizations, brilliant publication. I call it the FIPIMS model that they have here. They talk about formulating the change, planning the change, implementing the change, managing the transition, and sustaining the change. And these are ways you can approach change at a higher level in organizations. Formulating the change is all about building the rationale to help people understand, like sense-making. Planning the change is all about identifying activities that help people prepare for the transition from the current state to the future state. Implementing the change is where you focus on demonstrating the future state capabilities, checking to ensure capabilities are having the intended impact. And then we have managed the transition. And this element considers how to address needs related to the change that may surface once the future state is achieved and sustaining the change. And this element seeks to ensure that the new capabilities continue and previous processes or behavior cease. And that's pretty much what I call the FIPIMS model. PMI calls it managing changes in organizations. It's an entire uh, standard or guide, if you will, to change. Then we have the ADCAR model. The ADCAR model is very human-centric, humanistic. It talks about the awareness, identifying why the change is necessary, create a desire in the individuals, create some fire. There needs to be a desire to be part of supporting that change. And then knowledge, people need to understand how to change. This includes understanding new processes and systems. And then we have ability. In this step, knowledge is supported with hands-on practice and access to exercise and help, expertise and help as needed. 
And the last one is reinforcement. And reinforcement supports the sustainment of the change. And this can include rewards, recognition, feedback, and measurement. So it's very human-centered. If you take a look, this model created by Jeff Hyatt compared with managing change in organizations is more people-centered. The managing change in organizations is more process-centered, but together they could work really, really well. The next one is John Cotter's model, and this again is another great model. And John Cotter introduced the eight-step process for leading change for transforming organizations. It's a top-down approach, though, where the need for an approach to change originates at the top levels of the organization. And that's okay, because the top levels need to understand and buy into that change first, know why we're doing what we're doing, and then it permeates down. So one, create an urgency for the change form a powerful coalition. You definitely want to have allies. You definitely want to have people that are for the change, create a vision for the change, communicate the vision, remove any obstacles, create short-term wins, build on the change, and anchor the changes in corporate culture. So these are not bad. These are just different different from the managing change in organizations and add costs slightly. Let's talk about the last one, the Virginia Satter change model. This change model is a model of how people experience and cope with change. If you've taken a look at the J-curve, you might appreciate this. It's based on a number of states. So let's read. It says, its purpose is to help project team members understand what they are feeling and enable them to move through change more efficiently. So we have late status quo. This initial stage is when everything feels familiar and can be characterized as business as usual. Then we have the foreign element. Something happens, there's a shift in the status quo. Then this chaos, people are in this crazy, unfamiliar territory. There's a transforming idea. People come to a point where they come up with an idea that helps them make sense of the situation. They begin to see how they can find a way out of the chaos. And then we have practice and integration. People try to implement their new ideas or behaviors. Uh, There may be setbacks and a period of trial and error. And then we have new status quo. People get used to their new environment. They're like, oh, I'm here. I can survive. I can actually live in this environment. Eventually, the new status quo becomes the new normal. All right, let's move on to talk about the transition model, which is actually our final one. It seems as though the Virginia SATA change model didn't make its way in here. So I'm going to squeeze it in here real quick. And there we have it now included. So if you take a look at the table in the Pembroke 7th, you'll see that the Virginia SATA model is missing. So it's in there now. Let's talk about the transition model. And this is the William Bridges transition model. The William Bridges transition model is very similar. The model identifies three stages of transition associated with change. It's ending, losing, and letting go. Then we have the neutral zone, and then we have the new beginning. So let's back up a little bit. William Bridges transition model provides an understanding of what occurs to individuals psychologically when an organizational change takes place. This model differentiates between change and transition. Change is situational and happens whether or not people transition through it. Transition is a psychological process where people gradually accept the details of the new transition, the new situation that comes with the transition. The model identifies three stages. Like I said, one, ending, losing, and letting go. Two, the neutral zone. And three, the new beginning. The ending, losing, and letting go 
is often associated with fear, anger, upset, uncertainty, and this is where people have some resistance to the change. Then we have the neutral zone. The change is happening in this stage. In some instances, people feel frustration, resentment, confusion, and anxiety. Productivity may drop. And then eventually people go through you know, the, that valley in the J-curve and there's the new beginning. And at this point, people accept and even embrace the change. They are more adept at the new skills and new ways of working and people are often open to learning and are energized by the change. All right, and that's it for the change models. That was a bit of a long one. Let's go to complexity models real quick. First complexity model that we have here is a sign fin framework. Now let's take a look at what that looks like. And this is here in the seventh edition and it was created by David Snowden. It's a conceptual framework used to diagnose cause and effect relationships. As a decision-making aid, the framework offers five problem and decision-making contexts. We have the following. Where there's obvious cause and effect relationship, best practices are used to make decisions. Complicated relationships exist where there's a set of known unknowns or a range of correct answers. In this situation, it is best to assess the facts, analyze the situation, and apply good practices. We have complex relationships, including unknown unknowns. In chaotic environments, the cause and effects are unclear. There's too much confusion to wait to understand the situation. In these situations, the first step is to take action to try to stabilize the situation, then sense where there is some stability and respond by taking steps to get the chaotic situation to a complex situation. And then we have disordered relationships which lack clarity and may require breaking them into smaller parts whose context links with one of the other four contexts. And those are the five things. You can take a look at that in the seventh edition. And let's move on to the next one, which is my favorite. And this is the Stacy model, the Stacy matrix. Ralph Stacy developed the Stacy matrix, matrix, which is similar to the Seinfeld framework, but it looks at two dimensions. You might have seen this in the Agile Practice Guide on page 14. It looks at the relative uncertainty of the requirements of the deliverable and the relative uncertainty of the technology. And based on what you have in terms of high uncertainty of the technology, high uncertainty of the requirements, then that makes a case for you definitely to move more into some agile practices of iterative and incremental. It's quite a remarkable one that I would advise you to look at. It explains the business case for agile very well. We have different zones in there. We have chaos, we have complex zone, and we have the simple zone. Uh, definitely know those. That could help you on your exam. Let's move into project team development models. The first one is Tuckman's Ladder, which many of you know too well, have the five stages of team development, forming, storming, norming, performing, and adjourning. And depending on the team, you could get a team that has moved all the way to performing and a new person joins, and that takes them steps back, could even take them back to beginning again. And then we have the adjourning stage, which is undesirable because in the world of Agile, we look at our teams as carrying all this equity and all this time and people investment that we don't want to disband the team. So when we adjourn, the work disperse, the, the team disperses to work on other things, but what a waste of all that relationship investment because now we have to start all over again from ground zero. So we don't like the adjourning stage in the world of Agile. All right, let's move on to the next one. You might get a longer video of this one on YouTube. Actually, you can find my videos on Tuckman's Ladder and 
the Drexler-Sibet team performance model. So the Drexler-Sibet team performance model consists of these seven stages. And this is really more about team building and getting the team to develop. So we have the orientation, which is the why stage. Why are we doing what we're doing? We have trust building where the team gets to know each other. Who are you? Goal clarification. What are we doing? Commitment. Commitment addresses the question of how we're going to do what we're doing. Implementation is all about high-level plans being decomposed into greater levels of detail. Then we have the high-performance state. This is where we're going to wow everyone with our awesome team performance. After the project team has worked together for some time, project team members reach a high level of performance. They're functioning as a well-oiled unit. And then we have the renewal stage. Renewal is the stage of working through the changes on the project team or the project and asking, should we continue? What is the reasoning? This causes the team to consider if the past behavior and actions are still sufficient or if the project team needs to go back to a previous stage to reset the expectations. So all throughout, my friends, we've been talking about these buckets, situational all the way to project team development. Finally, the PMI has put an other bucket. So we have other models. So we have conflict model. And the conflict model talked about here is one that we know as a Thomas Kilman conflict mode instrument. If you've read the sixth edition, you're familiar with force or direct, avoid or withdraw, smooth or accommodate, uh, compromise or reconcile and stuff like that. Those are the pieces talked about. Now in the seventh edition, unfortunately, we have a little bit of muddy water here. We have confronting and problem solving, but remember confronting and problem solving in the business world are known also as collaborating. So we have PMI breaking down these two as separate, confronting, problem solving, collaborating, collaborating and problem solving were the same in the sixth edition. So I don't know why they've done this. This is not how it's broken down in the uh, actual Thomas Kilman website. So I find it a little bit strange. It's broken down this way. Uh, we have compromise, smooth or accommodate force. Uh, and here in the seventh edition, they don't give you the breakdown of what the other terms are. So let me go over them really quick the way I see them. Confront, problem solve, collaborate, all same thing. Compromise or reconcile, same thing. Smooth or accommodate, same thing. Force or direct, same thing. Withdrawal or avoidance, same thing. And those are defined. You just need to make the connections as to what is what. All right. The next one we have here under other models is negotiation. So under negotiation, the models that you typically see are win-win, win-lose or lose-win, and lose-lose. Win-win, this is the optimal outcome that we should be going for. Win-lose or lose-win, this describes one person winning and another losing. Lose-lose, this is when both parties lose. This outcome can occur when win-win outcomes may have been possible, but competition overwhelms collaboration. This scenario, everyone ends up worse off. A win-win perspective is found when the following characteristics are present. People have character, have trust, and as far as approach, each party is willing to look at the situation from the other's point of view. Really good one to know and espouse, especially in the world of Agile, where we always look for everyone to be happy, win-win, consensus, group direction, that kind of thing. All right, let's talk about planning. So here under planning, it says, Barry Bohm developed a model that compares the time and effort invested in developing plans to reduce risk, including the delay and other costs associated with over-planning. By taking more time to plan up front, 
many projects can reduce uncertainty, oversights, and rework. However, the longer time, the time spent planning, the longer it takes to get a return on investment. Common sense, right? The sweet spot is different for every project. Therefore, there's no correct answer for the right amount of planning overall. This model demonstrates that there's a point where additional planning becomes counterproductive. Pretty much common sense. All right, the one you've all been waiting for, process groups. This is PMI's logical ordering of processes. It's a, a logical ordering of groupings of processes in big buckets. And the big buckets are initiating, planning, executing, monitoring, and controlling, and closing. The process groups interact within each phase. So you can have uh, development having its own initiating, planning, executing, monitoring, and controlling, and closing. You could have the design having its own five process group interactions in there. And honestly, this is so scalable. A lot of people think it has to be big and huge. It doesn't. doesn't have to be big. You can scale this. Really dependable model that's been around for a while. All right, let's take a look at the next one here. And this is a salience model. The salience model is all about stakeholders. Salience means prominent, noticeable, or perceived as important. This model was proposed by Ronald K. Mitchell, Bradley R. Agle, and Donna J. Wood. The authors denoted a stakeholder identification based on three variables. I call it the pull factor, but it's really power to influence the urgency of the stakeholders claim on the project for stakeholder engagement and legitimacy. So power, urgency, and legitimacy is what the salience model is all about. I call it the pull factor, P-U-L. And that, my friends, concludes our manic review of part one, just the models. You can see there's a boatload of content here, my friends, and I've helped you go through it pretty quick. We still, in the next video, have to go over the methods. It's a lot of content, but in part two, we will be covering all the methods, the data and analysis methods, and we'll be covering the data uh, gathering uh, methods. So just stay put. In the next video, we'll begin covering them one by one. I look forward to seeing the next video. If you've got any questions about any of this, put it in the comments below, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Remember, the artifacts have already been covered. We have all 76 of them. So if you're looking for that video, just search the channel or look for the link below. I'll do my best to include it. You take care and bye for now. And of course, don't forget to hit like and share with your buddies. Talk to you soon.